world's a beautiful place if you keep music in your soul. Father George Marson Sr. was born in 1891 in Fayette, Missouri, and uh, his father was uh, the champion fiddler in those days. They called him Fiddler of uh, Missouri. He was always interested in playing the violin, of course, coming from the roots, his father being the, the um, champion fiddler. And he would go out in the coal shed and with a lump of coal that was his stand for his music and um, his first violin he made from a cigar box and he strung strings on it and that was his violin. He came to Boulder, Colorado when he was three years old and I would like to um, read something to you about what is he had quoted to uh, Gunther Schuller, who wrote uh, Early Jazz. And in this book, you'll find all kinds of information about our father. He says, when I first moved to Boulder, I was pretty green. I want to tell you about this. On the train from Denver to Boulder, when I first came from Fayette, I saw a mountain for the first time in my life. As we approached Boulder, the mountains became more and more plain to me. They look so large, so enormous. I said to myself, what are those things up there? I didn't even dare ask the conductor. I thought by getting up so close to those mountains, they were going to fall on me. And I ran like a little boy under the seat and started crying. So the conductor says, what's the matter, young man? I said, oh, I'm afraid of those things up there. I'm afraid they're going to fall on me. He says, oh, they won't fall on you. Those are mountains. They've been there for years. Well. I managed to get to Boulder and soon I became accustomed to the mountains. Uh, when he was in his younger years, he played in what was called a house of dispute. <laughs> and uh, it was Maddie Silk's home house that my dad played for. He formed his, his orchestra and I don't recall going back to New York, but I was with my mother and dad when he went to New York and um, started making records for Columbia Record Company. In the meantime, he had signed his contract with Columbia Records and RCA heard about his band and heard him play because at that time it was so unusual to hear a violinist with a, uh, a jazz band. And um, they called him from RCA and asked him uh, if he could come over and record for them. He told them no, but he did have a very good friend in Denver, and he would contact this friend, and this friend was Paul Whiteman. So um, from there, my dad was uh, received an invitation from the King and Queen of England, and he took his band over to England and played a command performance for the King and Queen of England, and this was in the 20s. 
Our father also started Mamie Smith. He needed a blues singer for one of the recordings. He went to Mamie Smith and asked her if she would be interested in singing the blues that he was going to record. And she told him yes, but she didn't have anything to wear. So he took her to the store, bought her a brand new dress. And that was the first recording that a black woman blues singer made. And it was made with our father. His band headlined the Pantages Circuit. In those days, they had vaudeville, and you would go to a show, and you would see a movie, and then they would have the vaudeville shows, and um, everyone would look forward to going to these very shows because this is the way we would be able to see the different artists who were back east and that would come out west to perform. And uh, Daddy was the um, headliner, which means that he headed the vaudeville show for seven years. Another gentleman had a nightclub out in uh, Golden, and um, it was called Rockrest. And he used to take the soot from our stove, our coal stove, and put it on my face. And he would take me on the weekends to Rockrest and set me on his knee, and he would sing Sunny Boy to me. And uh, they had to close the restaurant, uh, uh, the um, nightclub, because he was black and the gentleman that was in was Catholic and the Ku Klux Klans said they would burn it down. So um, they had to give the nightclub up for this, very, for this reason. Uh, Daddy was uh, the violinist for at Shorter community AME Church and uh, he played for the choir for some 58 years. He would go out on jobs and come in sometimes three and four o'clock in the morning. Other times he would get home just before church time, take his bath, change his clothes and right there every Sunday. He never missed a Sunday. He uh, made sure that a sister and I worked very hard at, at our instruments, or with our instruments. And he insisted that we play classical music. 
and he was a jazz violinist, and as she mentioned previously, uh, he wanted to be a, a concert violinist himself, but was unable to do so because of his color. And so I think what he did, he instilled in us the, the, the basics, he wanted us to be classical musicians. Take any uh, jazz violinist, uh, Grappelli. Grappelli. You could take Venuti. Mm -hmm. Any of them. They all had a classical background. background. You have to have it to if you don't have that technique and the um, understanding of, um, of music. Basically, it's very difficult to um, to to riff on 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 the violin. But I uh, I relish uh, the memories of. Dad and and I and certain um, little riffs that he plays, I can still hear them in my mind when certain numbers are played. My father was a musician, and I remember him coming home from work, and he played piccolo and trumpet, and he'd take out his music rack and practice. My mother had given me lessons of the piano, but I couldn't stand the piano in those days, kind of considered sissy. <laughs> and so my friend had a trumpet that he had joined this Knights of Pythias band, and we didn't have a cafeteria. I left my lunch at his house. And I began to play on his trumpet. And I learned to play trumpet and ready to go out and make a gig before my parents even knew I could play trumpet. In the early days, all minstrels had parades. It's, and, you know, and that was a tremendous instrument. See those cats walking with their red coats and whatnot. And it gives you kind of, you'd like to do that too. You know, so I never will forget that my father being a musician, 
one of the popular minstrels came to our city, and uh, he was naturally bragging about his son playing trumpet, and they allowed me to play with that band, and they asked me to, I told them what I was going to play, I didn't know what key I was going to play it in, and so they told me, just stay out there, join me. So I tried in a different key that they'd been playing in, but they did join it. And it was quite an inspiration to me to have a chance to play with one of those bands. I started playing in 1924, out in the oil fields of Oklahoma, playing at jitney dances and whatnot, which meant the girls got five cents a dance, and some of the fellows, they were good dancers, some of the fellows would buy just rolls and rolls of tickets and just go around and pick out the good dancers. You're out on your own, and mother and father's back in your little small town. They don't know what you're doing. I had an opportunity to play every... I was making more money than my daddy was making. The Blue Devils became very famous. In fact, they made a movie of this band because so many people succeeded. It was a band out of Oklahoma City when I joined it. They had a original... Uh, came from out east. And they were a theater band. They came along with Gonzel White show. And they made their way to Oklahoma City and they began to become a theater band there at the theater in Oklahoma City. In the meantime, I'd been at Fisk University studying to be a dentist. I had my pre-dental work. And I came home, came home to Oklahoma City and really was ready to enter my Harry Medical Dental School. But I chose music. And if you will know, <laughs> Notice this innocent-looking young man. That's my picture. I was second from the left. One of the things that made the Blue Devils popular was that they began to add instrumentation. All the stock that were written by the stock arrangers were three-part harmony. We began to add the fourth and the fifth part in a way that was acceptable to the average trained musician. And it became fuller sound. I joined Count Bass at the Reno Club when he was, before he was famous, to be frank. And uh, we were broadcasting over at W9XBY, a Kansas City station. And John Hammond, who at that time was a great promoter of jazz music, heard the band over this station. He turned around came back to Kansas City and hired Count Bass. put him under contract, and I slipped off and Count Bass and went to Omaha. And the next time I heard Count was coming out of the Grand Terrace at, in Chicago because he had good bookings and he moved on to that. But every time he came to Denver, he came in this basement. We'd have him over for dinner. I'd serve the band. He always said I made the best decision when I left the band because I was able to establish a home, make a home for my family and send my kids to school. So he credited me with good decisions with that. I guess as a musician, I would have liked to have been in the great Count Basie band of Everybody Knows. I came to Denver in 1937 to work with Kenny McVeigh's band. I had known Kenny from the Alvin Walls days, Fats Wall used to be years ago, 
and he had known that I'd been with the Blue Devils, and he offered me the position, so I came. I was also looking for a place to put some roots down. I was kind of tired of traveling. Well, I came to Kenya to play at the old Tivoli Terrace that was located at 33rd and Shoshone here in Denver. This was the days of the Italian organizations having clubs all out in northeast and northwest Denver. And of course, Jaime Hershon was Jewish. We were rather a notoriety club. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. In fact, we played, Jaime was taken to jail and we played for Christmas down at the county jail for him because they sold whiskey after hours. And as I told you a little earlier, I didn't know what all those little cups who was drinking all that coffee. But it really wasn't coffee, it was liquor that they were serving after two o'clock. Jazz is one of the most misused words in the, in the dictionary. Everybody's playing jazz now. The main thing in the early days or in the days of music, when people could enjoy it, go along with you, clap their hands, pat their foot. It gave them a feeling just like the blues. They gave me a, a piano when I was about three years old. My mother heard me in the backyard playing the piano and singing. And uh, she watched me and then they got a larger piano and I just, there was a lady in the neighborhood, Mrs. Strashley, I can remember her name, who taught me the scales. And I just went on from there. I don't know how I played. I, I asked myself that question, now how do I, how did I learn how to play? And how do I remember so many numbers and tunes that I can play? So I guess it's a God's given gift. I really wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to run off and, and uh, go with Catherine Dunham. That's what I really wanted to do. I've always danced. I always sang. I always, that was the type of thing that I liked. I know uh, I was at Sunday school and I used to play for Sunday school and somebody told my mother I was jazzing up the hymns. I know the kids were singing very good. So uh, I got the worst beating. <laughs> so my mother took me to hear Art Tatum when I was quite young. He was playing and uh, she, I wanted to meet him and she took me back and I got to meet him and she told him I was interested in being a piano player, that I was interested in jazz. And the advice that he told me, and I never have forgotten, that if I was to uh, keep people interested in listening to me, not to play too loud. And I've never done that. I've always played softly. And when I went out on my own and wasn't with a band, when I go to a new place, I just start playing softly. And uh, if I heard somebody way in the back of the room whistling the tune I was playing, I know that I had arrived and they were interested in what I was doing.
the uh, Rawsonian was the in place to go at that time. Uh, there were many people there, and I got to meet a lot of the stars because I had a brother-in-law who lived in New York who uh, had his own band, Herbie Cowens, and all the artists that came to Denver, he would tell them to get in touch with his brother and with me. I was married to his brother. And uh, <clears throat> they would call us, and I would invite them to our home and fix soul food. And then that's the way I got to learn a lot from them, too. The spots were at our house, the original ones. And after uh, the integration, then the things start going downhill. When we, people of color, were able to go to the so-called white establishments and they stopped coming to the Rawsonian and in that way things start going down. But uh, one time the, the Rawsonian was a place to go. They didn't play our people much. Maybe you, you got two dollars a night and you played from eight to from eight to two or eight to one. That's all you got. And maybe they gave you a meal. As I can remember, but I was just in my teens. And my mother would always have there would always be some person that would come and ask my mother if I could play with them, and she said yes if you look after my daughter. So I was playing with fellows that were much older than me, but. Um, because I could play the piano, and there wasn't too many women piano players, or too many piano players, period, in Denver. I did a lot of work with different people. that I, There were so many I can't even remember now. Arthur Davies thought that I was, um, I just, he just thought that I was too sassy for him. I sassy him. And so I, he, he, tired, he fired me Saturday night, and then he tied me back Monday morning. <laughs> I think that went on for a while. It got to be a joke. So then finally I get, I would say to him, well, are you going to fire me tonight or are you going to let me go on and not fire me? He said, well, I'll, you've been pretty good this week, so I won't fire you. I worked with him for a long time. And we're the best of friends now. I could have gone much farther if I could have read music because um, I should have, but I didn't. I did go to uh, um, school Lamont to a teacher. I was trying to learn how to read music, and she heard me play. And she she told me this: I think that what you're doing, if you learn how to read music, might take away from what your natural talent. I think that jazz reaches everyone. I think it's a universal uh, language. There's something about jazz that you just everyone opens up to, and you can be someplace and you can't speak the language of another person, but if you can sit down and play the piano, they'll listen to you, and in some way or another, you start communicating. That's what jazz is to me. It's, it's a form of communication. I, uh, I think it's a gift that the gods gave us. The gods didn't give us people of color very many things, but I think he gave us that. You know, I tell you one thing about music. When you're a musician, 
um, you kind of take everything in stride. You take the hard punches, music kind of soothes you. If you know those musicians, they won't get old either. Because they don't worry about it. They don't worry about the aches and pains. So there's something about music. So about the world, the world's a beautiful place. If you keep music in your soul.